The following content is provided to you as a ministry of Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a high-adventure Christian wilderness camp in Andrews, North Carolina. Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters exist to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through the exposition of Scripture and personal relationships in order to equip the church to impact this generation. For more information, visit our website at swoutfitters.com or follow us on Twitter using the handle at SnowbirdSwo. Enjoy the message. All right, so it's uh, this morning, like any other one y'all have had, it's really informal, so y'all feel free to get up and get coffee, and we usually have about six boxes of donuts over there, so there's more than enough donuts. Last week, we had groups that just took boxes of donuts to their seats and passed them out, which was funny, but about 30 minutes into it, nobody was listening to me anymore. They're just slouched in their seats, staring at the ceiling. (laughs) But Friday, I understand it. Have y'all had a good week so far, though? Yeah. Good. All right. All right, so this morning, this morning we're going to be talking about um, ministering to sexual abuse survivors. And unfortunately, in youth ministry, if you spend any amount of time in it, it's not a matter of if you'll ever have to do this, but when you'll have to do it. So we need to be prepared as leaders to have those conversations. And so as we prepared to teach this text for the summer, uh, I was really honestly just looking for some illustrations in Scripture because this seems like such a topical issue. Uh, so I thought, oh man, well, Tamer would be a good example to use. We'll, we'll look at her as an illustration and, and walk through that. But as the Lord led me through that Scripture, I realized that... I mean, it's so profitable for teaching that we're going to be able to just go through that entire text expositionally and break it down and everything that we need to know is inside of it. So we're going to be in Second Samuel chapter 13 this morning. It's a little bit of a lengthy text. It's verses 1 through 22, but they're all important. So we're going to cover all of them. All right, so starting in chapter 13, verse 1, the word Lord says this. It says, Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamer. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamer. For she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shema, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamer, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamer come and give me bread to eat, and prepare the food in my side that I may see it and eat from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamer come and make a couple of cakes in my side that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamer, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamer went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down. She took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamer, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamer took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she, when she brought them near to him to eat, He took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. 
As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and laid with her. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he had hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamer put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. She laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamer lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamer. Okay, so it's, it's a painful text to read. It's a difficult text uh, to, to see in, in detail how this story is played out. Uh, but again, as we work through this, we, we can see that what we need to know in ministry can all be found in this passage. So we're going to start off right out of the bat in verse 1. Verse 1 challenges our view of what a sexual abuser, what a predator looks like. It says, Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamer, and after a time Amnon, David's son, loved her. So Amnon is the half-brother to Tamer. So they share a father in in David, uh, but they have separate mothers. We typically think of sexual predators and abusers as uh, people who hang out around playgrounds or people who try to slip uh, pills into people's drinks in bars and and they're just kind of crafty and sneaky, these strangers behind the scenes. But the reality is, is that 8 out of 10 people know who their abuser is, and they know them personally. And so the difference being that with an adult, right, an, an adult who experiences sexual abuse of any kind, right, they can identify that. It's usually sudden and violent, and they know exactly what's happened. But when it comes to adolescents and children, especially when it happens inside the context of family, uh, it's not always realized what's going on. And so as sexual abuse is introduced, sometimes it's not until years after the fact that it re- they really realize what's happened to them. I've had conversations with students that have realized that they were victims of sexual abuse at 14, and I've had others that have realized they're victims of sexual abuse at 20. And so what, what happens is, is that in the child's mind, right, uh, this has been, again, introduced over time. This grooming process has happened. And so as a child, they can go through what they call post-traumatic amnesia. And, and so in their mind, not being able to rationalize or cope with what's going on, they just repress it. And then they detach themselves from it. And so it becomes more like a bad dream. And so they get to a point where they don't even really believe that it happened because they disassociated from it so much, it doesn't even seem realistic. So it's one thing that you might have, to, uh, might have to combat if sexual abuse has happened in the formative years. But that tactic used by abusers uh, to get access to a child and to, and to prepare that child for sexual abuse is called grooming. And so that grooming process, what they do is they will take a child, isolate that child, and then it, it happens uh, slowly over time. Uh, we've heard instances from anything being... It started off as a game, uh, a game that introduced more touching and more groping until it became really overtly sexual, 
Others, uh, they've used videos, like adult videos, and said, hey, let's pretend to be like movie stars. And so there's a lot of tactics that abusers will use with children to try to gain that access. But I want you to understand that in that grooming process, they're not just preparing the child so the child would be open to sexual abuse. They're also grooming parents, and they're grooming people in that child's life because they want to shape everything. They want to be able to control the situation and get as much access to that child as possible. So they're not just going to establish trust with the child. They're going to try to establish trust with the families and with leadership around them because they want to be able to have that kind of influence. And we'll talk about why that is a little bit later on. So have any of you guys have ever seen that movie uh, Meet the Parents before? Meet the Parents? Yeah, it's a funny movie. But this guy, right, this whole time, this guy who wants to marry this woman, he's, he's coming in and he's, he's trying to get inside the, the circle of trust. Dad's like a CIA agent and he's always hitting him with a uh, lie detector test. And so it's always about getting inside that circle of trust. Well, that circle of trust is meant to keep the danger out, right? It's about keeping that family secure. Well, the problem is, is that when sexual abuse happens inside the family, that circle of trust that's meant to keep everybody out is now the walls that keep secrets in. It keeps everything contained. A child, even if they did want to, to come forward and say, this has happened to me, I've been a victim of this, they feel like they're abandoning their family. They're doing their family harm. And, and a lot of times, even when it comes to realization that abuse has happened, moms and dad, because it's happened inside that family unit, they try to contain it, and they don't want it to get out. And they'll even deny that it's happened because they don't want to bring that kind of shame on the family. So that family dynamic, it can be really difficult to work through. But understanding, you know, that anyone can be a sexual abuser, we'll move forward in the text. And as we go forward in verses 2 and 4, we see this really strong warning to leaders. We understand that leadership, as leaders, we're kind of the barometer for behavior in our students' lives. However we act and whatever we allow is whatever they're going to see. It's, it's not about our standards and what we say. Right? I, I, said, I can set a lot of standards with my kids and say, this is how we do things. This is how it's going to be. But if I allow something else, then it doesn't matter what I say. They're going to operate at whatever the lowest level is that I'll tolerate. And so it's the same thing with, with our students, right? We, we understand that we can set a lot of high expectations, but they're going to do whatever we allow them to do. If we tolerate it, they'll do it. So we're this barometer for expected behavior. Well, the same thing was true then. We see that Amnon being the son of David, right? David the king, you would think that in a, in a, in a, uh, a royal family like that, that there would be certain expectations. There would be this high standard, this high bar. But we see that David spoiled his sons, and he gave his sons whatever they desired. And then because David himself took on all these concubines and all these mistresses, right, he had multiple wives, that the things that David said weren't always reflected in the kingdom. So his sons just kind of dropped to this lowest level, this lowest standard. And so in verses 2 and 4, I want you to hear what Amnon's words were. So in verse 2 it says, And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. So he says it's impossible for him to do something to her. There's some resistance there. Then in 4 he describes what it is. And so Jonadab, it says, And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So who was the barrier between him and Tamar? Absalom. Right? Absalom, Tamer's brother. Who was not the barrier between him and Tamer? 
David, Tamer's father, his father, the king, the leader. He did not see the leader as a barrier in this instance. And we'll move on in verses 6 and and 7. It says, So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamer come. Make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamer, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. Not, not only did he not respect David, he used David. He had groomed David. He knew David was going to give him whatever he wanted. So he actually used the leader in this instance to gain access to Tamer. He used him so that he could abuse her. So this should be a strong warning for us to protect the flock well. Like to really go after and be vigilant for the people that the Lord has entrusted to us. And understanding that there's nothing magical about the walls of the church that keep danger out. Safe leaders make safe churches, not the walls inside of it. So we have to be vigilant even inside of our communities. So I want us to ask ourselves a few questions. One is, how well do I understand child protection and do I have expected behavior? Like, do I have expected procedures when dealing with students inside of my ministry? And that's not so much about uh, the expected behaviors. Again, it's not so much about well, this needs to be legalistic in this way, and, and we need to have this outlined. It's about providing a structure not only for you but for your students because we, we want objection to be clear. We want anyone that comes inside to know this is exactly how we handle students. We don't have one-on-one conversations. We don't get behind closed doors alone. Right? We raise the blinds. We make it transparent. We let other people know these conversations are happening. So we want to have transparency in our ministry, one, to be above reproach, but also just to set the expectation among anybody else who would come along that this is how we handle those things. So there wouldn't be an excuse. Also, how do we respect our students' personal space? You know, it's a lot of times students become like our own children. So we, uh, you know, especially with youth pastors and their boys, they get really wrestly and, and grabbing and things like that. Man, that's good. Young boys need those things. But there also has to be some clear barriers as well. And it's not so much about uh, protecting the children from us. It's about giving them a good view of what, uh, of what leadership strength looks like, but also what that expected behavior is. Because often in a, in a child's mind, in a student's mind, right, if this adult handles me this way, and we have one-on-one conversations behind closed door, and that's been a safe thing for a, for a season— now, when another adult steps in and kind of walks into a trusted role inside of that ministry, even though they may not be a trusted individual, and they start to get touchy and grabby, I go, okay, well, this has happened before, so this isn't a big deal. And now we get behind closed doors and have closed-door meetings. Well, this has happened before, and it's been safe, so it's not a big deal. We really want to shape our students' minds to understand that this is how conversations happen. This is how we interact with adults. That way, they understand when somebody tries to put them in a situation that doesn't look like that, and it doesn't look safe, they go, oh, something's not right here. I need to get out of this. And so we want to make it clear to our students what those expectations are as well. Understanding that allowing yourself to be isolated with students, to be alone, to have those intimate conversations, they can be necessary, but people need to know about that. There needs to be transparency, and we don't need to be in a, in a place where students can't see us because we want to set the expectation to our students that we are transparent in everything we do. That way, if another adult comes along and tries to isolate them the way that we saw uh, Amnon isolate Tamer 
and get her alone. We don't want to allow that environment. All right, so moving on. Now, after the abuse has happened, I want to spend some time in this. After this abuse has occurred, in verses 15 through 17, we start to see the relationship between the abuser and the victim play out. And I want to spend some time here because if we don't understand sexual abuse, if we don't understand what happens in the mind of the victim, a lot of things can seem really counterintuitive to us. And it can spin us out. So I want us to spend some time here and see what that looks like so we really do grasp this is how the mind works and we can help make sense of it. So 15 through 17, it says, Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. So here we see Tamer is willing to stay in an, an abusive situation because of what she sees as a greater sin, the shame of being put out. She's like, where, where would I carry my shame? Like She's willing to stay in that abusive situation because of fear. Like, imagine this, though. Like, we, ha- we have to think the way that Tamer feels now is no different than a young woman's going to feel today if this happens to her. What if I'm pregnant? What about the child? Who's going to take care of the child? Where am I going to carry my shame? What are people going to think about me? What is mom and dad going to think? What does my future look like now? And so she can't wrap her head around all those consequences right now, so she is willing to stay in that abusive situation to avoid that. And, and we see that Amnon realizes that, so he just kind of keeps heaping the shame on top of her to keep her silent. How many of you guys have ever been in a, in a car accident before? Almost everybody. Now I know why my insurance premiums are so high. Every week, people are always like, yep. And it's like everybody in the room has been in a car accident. But so what happens in a car accident, right, is a lot of times we don't understand why it happened. Right? It just happens so fast. Bam. You rear end somebody. You run off the road. Whatever the case is. And in that instance, when we're trying to make, make sense of what has occurred, what we do in our mind is we go, I was driving too fast. I brake too hard. I shouldn't have been looking at my phone. I should have this. I should have that. Right? We start to internalize it. Because naturally, when we can't make sense of the world around us and we can't make sense of the chaos, what we do is we internalize it and we make it our fault. Because when we make it our fault, at least then we're in control. So the same thing happens in the child's mind. They had this moral injury, right, where they, they say this is, they have this idea of where they fit in the world. Right? They're like, I feel like I'm here. And then they become the victims of abuse, and the abuser has told them, no, you're not up here. You're an object. You're down here. And so now they're trying to reconcile, where do I fit in the world? I, don't, I can't make sense of it. You know what? This must be my fault. So a sexual abuse survivor and a pastor, he wrote this. He said, one significant reason why children embrace their sense of guilt and worthlessness is to maintain a normal relationship with the world, including their parents and adults internalizing the evil helps them feel like it is contained it allows them to keep living their life in a world full of powerful adults it's too overwhelming for a child to consider they all may be bad but if they themselves are the bad ones then they can continue to cope with the world the consequences of the opposite being true are unthinkable so what happens in the mind it says i can't fathom a world where everybody is capable of doing this to me if my stepbrother if my stepfather stepmother, teacher, if, if they 
being trusted and in my life are able to do this to me than anybody's able to me. So if anybody's able to do it, like, I don't want to live in that world. I, they can't fathom it. So instead they go, you know, it, it must have been my fault. So they internalize. I allowed the playing. I allowed the touching. I flirted too much. I drank too much. I put myself in that situation. And so they start to internalize and make it all their fault because to say that anybody is capable of doing that to them is even harder for them to grasp in their mind. And so what we see, like many abusers, we see Amnon start to play that. He understands that's how she feels. He understands she's carrying that weight. So what does he do? He starts heaping it on. Because he knows the more shameful he can make her feel, the more oppressed he can make her feel, he can keep her silent. And again, that is no different than what we see in today's society. Cyberbullying. They start rumors. right? They, they spread lies about what's happened. And so before the victim even has a chance to usually make a defense, they've already began to shape the story around everybody else. They're not just putting shame on them. They're starting to tell everybody else what to think about them because it's how they manipulate. It's how they control. And so Amnon does the same thing here. We see that he calls in one of the servants from outside to have Tamar escorted off the property and to bolt the door behind him. Well, in this context, in this culture, to have the door bolted behind you meant that you made an inappropriate advance on the king or that you made an in, uh, a, a gesture, right? What, basically what he's saying in this by bolting the door behind her, he's saying, Tamer came on to me. She doesn't make me feel safe, so lock the door behind her. So we, we see, right, he's adding shame on top of her head. He's making her feel filthy. He's making her feel dirty. But he also knows that this guy who's coming in to escort her out by bolting the door behind her, he knows that that's going to start the rumor in the kingdom about what happened. That guy's going to go tell somebody else. And they're going to tell somebody else. So now he's already shaping the story. And this is what abusers do. Not only do they abuse the victims, they try to stay in control and maintain the story and, and control the consequences by shaping the dialogue of everybody around them. So after being put out by the servant in verses 18 and 19, now we see Tamer started to try to cope with what's just happened to her. So now in this moment of realization, it says, Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamer put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and she went away crying aloud as she went. So there's some of the signs and symptoms in sexual abuse survivors. Abuse survivors are statistically more likely to experience depression, anxiety-related disorders, panic attacks, eating disorders, substance abuse, antisocial or aggressive behavior, and suicide. Many sexual abusers will, will resort to self-harm because that moment of self-harm is, is a way to escape the mental anguish that they're going through. It's like a welcome distraction to them. And so you'll see cutting and a lot of things like that as well. But what I noticed as I studied this is that the signs and symptoms inside sexual abuse survivors are not almost at all different than the signs and symptoms of combat veterans who come back suffering from post-traumatic stress. The same antisocial and aggressive behavior, the same compulsive behavior. And so we get this picture, right, that like post-traumatic stress is post-traumatic stress. And, and one thing that I've realized, right, is that most guys, whenever they come back from combat, 
if they are suffering from post-traumatic stress, they, they go usually one of two directions. They either say, I never want anything to do with that again. It was horrifying. It was scary. I can't even watch it on TV. I don't want to hear sounds from it. Like, it doesn't matter how safe they are. They don't even want to deal with it. But then on, then on the other end, you have those that have been severely affected by, these, in, by this environment, but it's the only place they felt like they had value and worth. So even though it's caused them so much trauma, they almost compulsively desire to go back. They're constantly fixated on it. It's all their mind can think of. And so even though it is been their, has been their source of trauma, it's also been their source of value and worth in their mind, so that's what they continue to pursue, whether they really desire it or not. So the same thing with sexual abuse survivors, right? They either usually go into the camp of sex. I don't care how safe it is. I don't care if it's in the context of marriage. I don't want to think about it. It's just too crazy. It, it, it can't feel safe to me. I've been too traumatized by it. It brings up too many bad memories. So regardless of how, uh, how glorifying it might be to, to God inside of a marriage relationship, it still can't seem safe to them. But on the other hand, you have those that have believed the lie that that's the only place they have value and worth. And even though sex is a source of trauma in their life, they pursue it compulsively. Because that's just how their mind has been wounded. It's how it's been afflicted. And now it's kind of how they're geared. At the root of all this, though, we, we see by Tamer's response, like, this is all acting out of deep sadness and anger. It says that, she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. And then after she was put out and the doors bolted after her, Tamar put ashes on her head and she tore the robe that she wore. I see the significance in that. This robe with long sleeves, right, it says thus were the virgin daughters. This was, this was the, the garments of a virgin daughter of the king. And she goes out and she tears it and she puts ashes on her head. Right, she's tearing the symbol of her virginity. She's tearing the symbol of her youth and her innocence. She realizes what she's lost, and she's lamenting over it like you would a death. Like she is grieving at the loss of her innocence here that's been stolen from her. And so there's a lot of anger and sadness inside. So now we move on to how do we respond? How do we respond to things like this? And the best way that I've found to kind of break this down is three points, and that's to listen, learn, and respond. Listen, learn, respond. So first is listening. The way you listen when a student first discloses sexual abuse to you is so important. One, because when they disclose, that means that you're the most trusted person in their life. You've become the safest person in their sphere of influence, and they go, this is the person I feel like I can take this to But I would say that almost 100% of the people in here that are involved in ministry in in any way are mandatory reporters, which means that if a student discloses sexual abuse to you, you have to report this to law enforcement and child services, which then in turn means that this child is going to have to tell that story again. So the way you listen the first time is going to dictate how it's told the second time. If you are skeptical, if you ask a lot of really hard questions, if you make this difficult for the child and you are the trusted person in their life, imagine how much harder it's going to be to disclose that when a stranger comes in, somebody from law enforcement who's going to ask more pointed questions, who may even be more skeptical. So your role in listening is just to acknowledge and believe them. Acknowledge and believe them. 
Whatever they say is true in that moment, like empathize, believe them. Don't ask those pointed skeptical questions. Encourage them and, and empower them saying you, you made the right decision by coming and disclosing this. Like that takes a lot of courage. You're doing the right thing. And then help begin to walk them through that process. Because as you, as the trusted person in their life, if you become judge and jury in that moment and you try to get to from point A to the very end in one moment, what you're going to do is you're going to crush them. And potentially what's going to happen is they're going to shut down for another decade or maybe the rest of their life, and they'll never come out again. So what you're doing is you're assuming a role of judgment and responsibility that you weren't meant to carry. Just listen and acknowledge and believe, and then help to begin to walk them through that process. More often than not, uh, we'll see that students... Naturally, they will demonstrate those antisocial, aggressive, compulsive behaviors long before they ever disclose it. Right? So have, have you all ever looked through uh, a pair of binoculars backwards before? If, y'all, if you pick up a pair of binoculars, right, you, you look through it and it magnifies things. But if you turn it around and you look through the big end, going towards the small end, it makes things look a lot smaller. So let me see if I can do this somewhat. There we go. Kind of like that. All right, so I got my telescope, right? What happens is, is we should constantly be looking through a lens of abuse and realizing that that abuse magnifies behavior, right? If an abuse has occurred, right, we should see that all this antisocial, aggressive, compulsive, like promiscuous sexuality, all this stuff, that's magnified because of the abuse. But what often happens is parents and leaders, right, we've turned that thing around backwards and we see all this messy behavior that's been displayed, and then whenever abuse comes out and they say, I've been sexually abused, we see all this and we go, mm, it makes that abuse look a lot smaller. So we see the behavior and we minimize the abuse. We should never do that. We, we should understand that those students, right, they are going to display those signs, display those symptoms long before they ever say that the abuse has happened. So we should go, oh, man, this child has been sexually abused all that behavior we've been dealing with over the past months or years makes sense. Rather than going, man, this kid has always been a problem. So I'm going to choose not to really dive in and believe that abuse side because they've lost their credibility. All right, realize, like, we should allow ourselves to look through that lens of abuse and go, man, that behavior makes sense. It does. If that's true, then I can understand why this is going on. So, so don't put up this wall and get focused on behavioral issues so much that we, we neglect believing the student when they disclose sexual abuse. All right, moving on. Next is to learn. So how do we learn? First way of learning is whenever a student discloses to you is don't say everything's going to be okay. Because if a student comes up and says, this is what's happened to me, and you say, everything's going to be all right, they immediately are going to feel like you're minimizing what's happened to them. They're going to feel like you're, you're pushing it down, going, it's not that big a deal. It's okay. Or we can't do that. Even if you yourself are a sexual abuse survivor, you can't say to a student, I know exactly how you feel. Because you don't. Nobody processes trauma the same way. You could experience the exact same thing, and you're going to process it differently. So you can't say, I know how you feel, or I know what you're going through. You can empathize and say, I've been there. But don't say, I know how you feel, because none of us processes it the same. They do need us to empathize, though, 
we do need to acknowledge that this doesn't deserve to happen to anyone. No one should have to endure this and that you'll be there for them. Next part of the learning process is don't, don't interrogate. And by that, I mean don't ask closed-ended questions. Don't make this a yes and no kind of statement. What we really want to do is we understand we get the most accurate information from human beings if we allow them to narrate a story, if we allow them to talk openly. So if this becomes a yes-no question thing and it's back and forth, now it becomes an interrogation. But if you allow the student to tell the story and you listen for cues as they're telling that story that makes sense and you need more information on, you say, can you describe that a little bit more? Can you tell me more about that? What did that look like? What did that feel like? And so... As you, op- as you introduce these open-ended questions, you're allowing the student to go a little bit deeper into it, but to dictate that and tell that at their own pace. If we ask closed-ended questions, we're going to get closed-ended answers as well. It's going to be very small. So keep it broad. Keep it big. Allow them to tell that story openly. Now, also, with that, don't take paper notes during this because that is going to feel like an interrogation. If a student comes in and, and they start to say, man, I was sexually abused, and they tell that story, go, okay, hold on one second. Let me get my pen and pad. Go ahead. Immediately they'll shut down. Now, some officers uh, have had some success in these kind of things where they could get a phone out and say, hey, do you mind if I just record this conversation? I'll set it over here. It'll be out of the way. And if a student's okay with that, maybe that's fine. But if that makes them uncomfortable, don't revert to paper notes. What you need to do then is you just need to be taking detailed mental notes as this conversation goes on. And then once that conversation's over, then write down as much as you can remember in the student's words. The environment that it took place in. Like, know how this all came about. Did, were you guys talking about something at the church that encouraged the students to come forward and disclose these things? And then again, in their own words, make this detailed statement, and then you're going to run it through senior leadership in the church, and then get law enforcement and child services involved to get them out of an abusive situation as quickly as possible. But never allow this to be turned into an interrogation. Next is to learn what to say and learn what not to say. And what I mean is do your homework. There are good resources out there on how to have these conversations, what your students are going through, what they're experiencing, how to love them well. Uh, One of those books is called Rid of My Disgrace. It looks like this. Uh, The author's names are Justin and Lindsay Holcomb. Rid of my disgrace. Yeah, rid of my disgrace. It it reads, um, it's really good. It's really deep. Tons of scripture, a little more academic. But there's these appendixes in the back uh, that have some really uh, really good points on these are questions not to ask. Don't have conversations in this way. And then others are saying, hell, this is how you should set the scene. These are things you should do or shouldn't do in those conversations. So it's really great in that way. Again, lots of good scripture. Really good at pointing students back towards Christ in those moments. The other one is called Understanding Sexual Abuse by Tim Hine. H-E-I-N. And that book, this guy is an Australian pastor. He was uh, a victim of sexual abuse. So was his wife. And that one's written much more pastoral, a little less academic. He talks about his experience, how the Lord grew him through that and, and nurtured him, and really how he, even today, uh, much later in life, still grieves what happened to him and how he still copes, uh, but constantly using Scripture and the gospel to point him towards truth in those moments. 
And so that one's a, a much easier read. You can probably do it in a day or two. Um, but he's got a ton of good information there as well. All right. Last point, we'll wrap this up. So now, how do we respond? First point is that we need to empower the survivor. All right. As students disclose to you, they've been out of control all the way up to this point. And this is their first step in gaining a little bit of control of the situation, to be involved in the process. So whenever they come to you, don't say, I'll take care of it, and then push them out of it, and then go try to handle it on your own. Keep them as involved in, as possible. You, you are mandatory reporting, so they, they, they're not going to have a choice in that. It's in their best interest that it goes forward. But help walk them through that. Allow them to be a part of that disclosing process. Allow them to be a part of it in that saying, these are the pros, these are the cons, this is why we have to do this, this is why it's important. And then allow them, again, to take place in that. Later on in life, as some of you will find out, you're going to have students that are going to go through your ministry and out of your ministry, and they're going to get in their college years and their young adult years. You may still be the most trusted person in their life, and they may come back to you in those college years or early adult years and disclose that they've been... uh, they've been sexually abused in some way. All right, now you, you're no longer in this mandatory reporting role, but you still need to empower them and encourage them to report those things and try to help walk them through that process because the soul doesn't really heal until we feel that just, justice has been done and it helps them overcome carrying that burden of like self-shame that goes along with it. But we also know that an abuser is going to continue to abuse as long as they're allowed to. And so it's, also, it's getting them out of that abusive mindset and about, out of that abusive situation, but it's also preventing this from happening to somebody else. So help shape that conversation with that uh, former student if they come back. Even though you're not in a mandatory reporting role, encourage them to disclose. Next is to, to be the resource and not the rescuer. If you set yourself up as the functional savior in this child's life, you're eventually going to be the single breaking point. You're going to be the weakest link in that student's life. So understand that this is going to take more than you to handle. This is going to take counsel, like specific counsel to get through this. It's going to take law enforcement to be involved. There is going to be a lot of people that have to be a part of that network. So if you try to take all those roles on yourself and carry all those roles, eventually what's going to happen is you're going to drop the ball, you're going to fail that child, and then your ministry opportunity is also going to be severed because that relationship is going to be severed. See yourself as a resource and a network full of resources and focus on the ministry to that student and then allow everybody else to do those roles that they're really designed to do well. Because if you try to control it all, eventually you're going to be the one that fails them and then that student's going to have nowhere to go and you're going to lose that end end into their life. So focus on the ministry, not, be, not being a functional savior. Next is to be an advocate. So if a student comes and they disclose this to you, walk them through this whole process. Too many times we see student, student pastors and leaders that have had sexual abuse disclosed to them, and it's happened inside the home, and then they call mom and dad in and they say, hey, this has happened to your child under your roof, under your covering, by someone inside your family, and they immediately go, that didn't happen. They're lying. We don't believe them. Like, naturally, they just deflect. They don't want, they, again, they don't want that responsibility on their shoulders. They, they can't wrap their heads around it. But unfortunately, what we've seen is they go, all right, well, mom and dad said that didn't happen, so I'm out. 
They just excuse themselves. Right? Don't flee at the first opportunity. Don't flee the first time you run into resistance. Be an advocate for that student as long as you can. All right? If that student's not telling the truth, that will eventually surface. That will come out. But again, it's not your role to jump on the bad bandwagon or just assume that it's not true from the beginning because it's too sticky and messy and you don't really want to deal with it. Walk them through the whole process. Help battle those myths and misconceptions inside the family. Like, really seek justice for that child. Walk them through it. Then also, if an abuse has occurred under your care and under your watch or because of your negligence, you need to be the first one to ask for forgiveness and seek reconciliation in that relationship. And I can imagine that's got to be a hard, hard thing to do. But if you, being their youth leader, right, carrying the character of Christ and everything that we do, if they come to you, disclose this, and it's happened under your care, and you don't seek forgiveness, and you don't seek restoration in that relationship, then what confidence do they have that anybody else is going to care enough to do the same? You have to set the example in that. Because really, until, the, until that evil is named and addressed and spoken against, healing can't take place. It's still just constantly being swept under this rug of like, well, I'm, I assume they know that I'm sorry about that. That can't be true. Too, to, too often in the church, what happens is we oversell forgiveness. We say, oh, you just need to forgive. You just need to forgive them. You'll feel better. Like, it'll, no, don't oversell forgiveness. A deep injustice has been done to that student. They have a right to be angry, and you should be righteously angry with them about what's happened to them. And they need to walk through that season of anger, and then, yeah, maybe one day they can get to that forgiveness. We understand that that's going to be necessary. But there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. They never have to have a conversation with that person again. They don't have to be reconciled. All right? Forgiveness is, is turning them over to the Lord and saying, I trust the Lord to handle that. They, they take their hands off of it. They hold on to it loosely. But as those students relive trauma, which they're going to do, they're going to relive trauma every day, we want to equip them to relive it differently. So we don't oversell forgiveness. We give them tools. We point them to the gospel. We point them to the hope of Christ. We give them good counsel. So as they relive that trauma, they relive it a little better each time. They've got some new tools. They handle it differently. They see it differently. And then they, when they relive it again, it's a little bit better. They learn some new tools. And then they're growing out of this as they relive that trauma over and over again. But what happens is when you tell them you just need to forgive, they feel this burden that they've already carried. They feel this shame and this guilt. And then they relive that trauma and they go, I feel so depressed because I can't forgive. If I could just forgive, then I would feel better. If I could just forgive, I would get over this. So what you've done is you've added one more burden on top of their shoulders to carry. Don't oversell that. Walk through them with that. Let them go through that season of depression and anger and bitterness, constantly pointing them to the gospel. So with that, I want us to lastly look at verse 20, because I think this has been misconstrued in the text. It says, And Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. Hold your peace. He's your brother. Don't take this to heart. It seems cold and callous to us. And we go, what is that guy talking about? 
Well, we see that Tamer moves into her brother Absalom's house and he lives with her. And then we see that two years later, Absalom goes and he kills Amnon for what he did to Tamer. So it wasn't that Absalom didn't care. What Absalom did is he said, take peace. This is your brother. Don't take this to heart. What he's saying is he does not deny the reality of who her brother is. He says, Amnon is a son of the king. This isn't going to get fixed overnight. This is a powerful man. But don't take this to heart. I'm going to be with you through this. And then she goes and she lives with him. Right? He's entering into her suffering. And in, in very few words, he's entering into her suffering. In Revelation 21, 3 through 5, it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Like, this is the model that we have to have. Like, Christ did not deny the reality of our sinful nature in the broken and fallen world that we lived in, but instead he chose to enter into it. He chose to suffer for us and alongside of us, and he comes to restore us. Like He's going to return one day, and he's going to wipe away every tear, and all those wrongs are going to be vindicated, and he's going to make all things right. And so this is the model that we have to have in our students' lives. As they go through this, we never deny the reality of what they're going through. Never deny the heaviness and the weight that they're about to walk through. That it's going to be a hard season. But instead, we suffer with them and alongside of them. We help walk them through this. But we're constantly pointing to the hope of the gospel that one day we serve a Savior that's going to return. and He's going to make all this right. And one day, all the tears, all the mourning, they're all going to be gone. And that he's good and that he can be trusted. So we're walking through them during the season, but we're constantly pointing them to the hope of the gospel because that's the only source of true healing that they really have. All right, I ran us late, so let me pray for us. Father, I love you. I thank you. Uh, thank you for this ministry. Thank you for those uh, that have brought students here, Lord. I pray that as we uh, get into our, uh, our last day and a half here, Lord, that you would just continue to work in students' lives, that you would continue to work in our own lives, Lord. Those students here that are suffering, uh, Lord, I, I pray that you would give us wisdom to speak into those situations. I pray that we would be uh, carrying the Christ-like character uh, in our ministry, that we would seek to be your image in these students' lives. Lord, I pray that uh, as our time here closes out again, Lord, if there are those students that are here that haven't submitted their lives to you, Lord, that you would save them, that you would reach out and take them for your own. We pray that wounds are healed, that burdens are lifted, and that sons and daughters are adopted into your family. Uh, Lord, again, thank you for uh, these pastors and leaders that are here now. We love them. We appreciate their service to you, Lord. I pray that you continue to bless them, bless this ministry, and bless our time together the remaining of the day. And we love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.